Well, as we come to the Old Testament, uh, we always want to remind ourselves that there are main purposes that the Old Testament continues to fulfill for us as Christian believers. Uh, And one of those main purposes is that the writings of the Old Testament serve as an example for us. Again, we remind ourselves of this from time to time. Paul talks about it in in 1 Corinthians 10 and and in other places. Uh, But as we live our lives of faith, the truth of these Old Testament narratives comes along and and proves to be exemplary. We can follow the example of of what's going on in these texts as we seek to have our life instructed by them. Uh, So the Old Testament provides an example. And then along with that, uh, the Old Testament also serves as a pointer because these writings are ultimately not just directing us in in, uh, examples of how to live out our lives of faith, but these Old Testament scriptures are directing us toward the object of our faith, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We know this from places like John chapter 5, where Jesus speaks about it uh, very plainly, Luke 24. Uh, Paul actually says at the end of Romans that that the preaching of Christ from the Old Testament serves to bring about the obedience of faith in our hearts. Uh, so these ancient scriptures here, they help direct us not only by their example, but ultimately they help, us direct, they help to direct us in, in our own understanding and recognition of who Jesus is and what it means to trust in Him. Um, so this is all important to, to keep in mind because as we study the Old Testament, it can be easy to fall into thinking that we're merely studying uh, old ancient texts that, that might be of some interest. Obviously, the storyline itself is captivating, so they might be of some interest, but what relevance really do they have? Uh, though as we continue to study them and as we give ourselves to them in prayer, that we understand that there's great purpose for us here as we're built up in living for Christ, even in our own time, uh, through this ancient truth. And so... Uh, as that serves as a bit of a reminder for us, we come to our passage this morning recognizing that there is very much an example of faith here and there very much is something that directs us to Christ out of this passage today. And as we think just along the lines of an example of how to live a life of faith, uh, we are brought to think about a unique subject from our verses this morning. And that, and that subject or that thematic um, component that's here reflects the theme of, of providence, the providence of God. And in saying that, uh, it is always helpful to define our terms if we're going to start to talk about something like providence, uh, because to speak of providence is, is to use a term that's not found in, in Scripture per se, but it is a very important word. It's an important vocabulary word for us to have uh, in our minds as Christian believers, because it's a term that theologians use to define the way in which uh, Scripture reveals how God acts in and through His created order. So to use one historic uh, confession of faith, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a document that dates back almost 400 years, in that document, providence is described as God's most holy, wise, and powerful. So it belongs to God. Providence belongs. It's His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. That's, That's providence. Or to use another historic confession, uh, this is from the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a document that's about 80 years older than the Westminster Confession. Uh, That document describes providence in this way. God's providence is His almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with His hand He upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them, that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things, come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. 
So, so what these historical documents are doing is, is, they're, is they're seeking to bring together an understanding of God's works in the world in a way that ultimately help trace out what the Bible reveals about how God works in the world around us. So they're bringing together truths like Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 10, where, where not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from God the Father. Right? Or in Proverbs 21.1, where we read that the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. That's providence. Or Acts chapter 17, where Paul speaks about God determining the allotment and the boundaries of the places where humans live, where we live as part of God's providence. It's, it's a word that describes God's the unique working of His will in the world. So while human responsibility is never negated in Scripture, at the same time, the Lord is not removed from circumstances, big or small, but instead He stands over and above and intimately connected to all things. From sparrows falling to the ground to kings making decisions that, that affect nations to the fact you live here. All of this is providence. And now, of course, this can bring up a number of questions, and not least of all around the presence of evil and things of that nature. And if you want to think more specifically about that, we've talked about that in this, in this series in 1 Samuel a little earlier. I think it was back in June, but we had a sermon entitled, An Apparent Contradiction. It's a thing in our text today. We're brought into that where we go into that side of things a little bit more. Uh, but for this morning in our text today, we're brought again to consider this notion of providence. And that's because uh, in this passage, we read that David himself says that the Lord has delivered Saul into my hand. The Lord has delivered Saul into his hand. And yet, what do we find David doing? We find David refraining from killing Saul. So why does David not kill Saul? David has an understanding of providence. He says it very clearly in verse 10. The Lord delivered you into my hands, he says when he's talking to Saul. David knows the opportunity is very much there because of God's ordering of things. But what we see is that David works through a process himself that's a little different than we might expect. And as he does, we're actually helped ourselves as we think about the nature of our own circumstances uh, that, are, that are present by God's providential design in our lives. But how do we navigate those with faithfulness? How do we navigate those in a righteous way? So this passage ultimately comes and it helps us. We know God is over the events of our lives. Providence is the, is the almighty and ever-present power of God, whereby as with His hand God upholds heaven and earth and all these things, right? Nothing comes to us by chance but by His fatherly hand. Paul says the same thing, the Lord works all things, right? Jesus says God even numbered the hairs on our head. David in Psalm 139, what does he say? All the days were ordained for me when as yet there was none of them. We know God is over all the circumstances of our life, not negating our responsibility, but divinely carrying out His perfect will. God is active. So then, so then, because circumstances present themselves providentially, because they can present themselves providentially in such a way, uh, does that mean that because things are immediately opportune in front of me, I can engage in them? Right? We, have, we have questions like this. There's a circumstance that's present in front of me. I know God's providence rules all things. So because it's there, does that mean it's there for me to walk through? Is that an open door for me? And this episode in David's own life helps us through, uh, think through questions like this. I wonder even, even this morning if you've had some weighty considerations around these kinds, of, these kinds of questions lately. We know God's hand is in all things. His providence is active. But, but what do I do with maybe this particular circumstance in my life or that particular opportunity in my life? What does faithfulness 
look like? Because, uh, because there's an open door, but just because there's an open door, does that necessarily mean that's a door open for me to walk through? Is that the direction I ought to be going? And if not, why would the Lord bring this situation to me to begin with? So again, David's example here, it, it helps us, not, not only in the way David navigates this, but ultimately, as we'll see, it prepares us not only to, to understand Jesus' own ministry with greater accuracy, but it actually brings us to the point of trusting in the sufficiency of Jesus' ministry all the more completely. Uh, so so what's, here, what's here can be a real encouragement for us today. And, uh, and so, and so we'll, we'll get right into the text. We're, we're going to gather our whole study just under the broad heading of, of providence in the wilderness. David's still out in the wilderness here. And if you, if you keep an eye on the verses, we're going to start in verses 1 to 4. And we'll think about those under the heading opportunity. The opportunity. So, uh, if you remember back to last week, David was almost caught by Saul in that very tense situation at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 23. And you remember what happened there. Uh, at, at the very last minute, uh, j- just as Saul was surrounding David, just as Saul was circling around David and his men to capture him and to kill him, Saul was called away to go fight the Philistines. The Philistines are attacking somewhere. And, and, uh, and that strikes us as strange uh, in that Saul actually responded to it because Saul hasn't really put forth much effort in, in terms of his kingly duty uh, for taking care of the Philistines. Uh, we know that's actually part of the reason, his, his, his lack of complete fighting. That's part of the reason God has rejected him as king and has put David in now as king, though, though, though Saul is still occupying the position. Uh, but in this case, and of course by, by God's rescuing providences for the benefit of David, Saul does respond and he goes off to fight the Philistines and David is spared just at the last minute. That's how chapter 23 ends. And, and not only is David spared at the end of chapter 23, but there, we're actually told that David ascends to En Gedi. So, so En Gedi is that fertile spring in the midst of, of mountainous, mountainous and, 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 and cave-filled uh, wilderness areas. En Gedi is that fertile spring where David goes and he finds some refreshment. And then as this chapter begins, we see that Saul's uh, intelligence network is, is still very active and focused on finding David. So, so chapter four begin, uh, 24 begins here with Saul returning from pursuing the Philistines. That's how the CSB reads. He returns from pursuing the Philistines, which is actually a really generous translation uh, because the text reads more literally in Hebrew that Saul returned from following the Philistines, from following the Philistines. Uh, pursuing makes it sound like, like Saul was actually really productive in his battling. Right? But that's, that's too generous, and that's, that's not what's really going on here. There's no report of victory. Normally, there's a report of victory after battle, isn't there? There's no report of plunder, nothing like that. All we're told is that Saul was following after the Philistines. So he probably scared them off or whatever it was. But the narrator's making a point that we don't need to get too excited about Saul, the victorious battle hero here. Hero. He's more like, like, like my dog chasing the cat out of a yard. A whole bunch of noise, a whole bunch of movement, but not, not really that big of a threat. Okay? So, so, so Saul, he was following after the Philistines. Whatever happened there, the, you know, the cat jumps over the fence and is gone. Now he's back on David. And, and, and Saul's told, actually really precisely, where David is again here. So, so one thing we notice is that Saul's information about David's whereabouts lately is actually becoming very accurate. Um, that happened in the last chapter as well. David is in the wilderness near En Gedi, Saul is told, which is true. We know that. And then even in the end of verse 2, there's a more precise location given. 
so Saul's very much still set on killing David. He's got good information, and not just that, but, he, but he's got a serious band of soldiers with him now to facilitate this, this chase um, this time around. So, so in verse 2, we're told that Saul took 3,000 of Israel's fit young men to go look for David. And we need to nuance that a little bit because fit young men just sounds like Saul found, you know, the 3,000 soldiers who could do the most pull-ups and gathered them all together and now we're going to go chase after David. But this phraseology here is, almost serves as a technical term in, in books like Judges to speak about a, a sort of a special forces group within Israel's larger, larger army, larger group of soldiers. So, so it's not just that Saul assembled an army of 3,000 average soldiers to go after David. And it's not just that Saul assembled uh, you know, some guys who were really in good shape and could handle the mountains and all of that kind of thing. What, what, what we're told here is that Saul gathered what we might say is like you know, 3,000 army rangers, so to speak, to go after David. This is the special forces group that Saul has. And not just that, but he did gather 3,000 of them. So David has about 600 men at this point. So you've got a ratio of 1 to 5 in terms of this potent force against David. And so by the time we get through verse 2 here, coming off the situation in the last chapter, we're right to get really nervous again. Because Saul's intelligence seems to be improving about David's location. And Saul's fighting group is also becoming more elite. So Saul's getting closer and closer to catching David. And this time, he's got even, even more effective fighters with him. It, it does not sound good at all for David until we get to verse 3. And in verse 3, we read that in the midst of this hunt for David, at some point, Saul goes off to a cave to relieve himself. He has to go to the bathroom. And believe it or not, that there's, there's actually a slight piece of necessary background here because in the directives for Israel's military life in places like Deuteronomy 23, you can go read it in Deuteronomy 23, Israel's instructed in a number of battle practices and one of those practices involves making sure that if you're in camp with your warriors, you go relieve yourself away from the camp and all by yourself. It prevents disease and all kinds of other practical things we can think of. And, and so it's, it's not that Saul's, you know, he's pr- not particularly intent on keeping the law of God, but this is a very practical battle directive that would have been interwoven into Israel's military practice, plus it's just very, you know, practical. So, so Saul, he's there with 3,000 elite fighters, but he's off alone. He's off alone as he tries to find this place to relieve himself. And Saul happens to choose this nice-sized cave that's on the other side of a local sheep enclosure, we're told, which sounds nice and private, right? It's out of the elements, and it's not a bad choice for, for a facility usage when, when camping, right? However, we read in verse 3 that in the deep darkness of the cave, David and his men were staying there. Actually, that, that in the recesses of the cave is the same language that's used to describe Jonah in the bowels of the ship. It's like as far back as you, way back in the darkness, right? David and his men, that's, that's, that's where they're hiding. They, they obviously will know Saul's been getting close, Saul's pursuing them, and this particular cave happens to be the one that he and his men happen to be, happen to, happen to be hiding out in. And who walks through the door but King Saul on a particularly uh, vulnerable, isolated, and personal mission of his own. Right? And what do David's men say in verse 4? This is the day the Lord has made. Isn't that what they say? And they say, look, this is the day the Lord told you about, David. I will hand your enemy over to you so you can do with him whatever you desire. David, this is our chance. Let's take him out. 
And so David sneaks up and cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. The robe you remember uh, from other passages, like where, uh, where Saul tears the robe with Samuel and Jonathan gives David his robe. Jonathan, Saul's son, gives David his robe. The robe is symbolic of, of royal position as, as king. So David cuts a corner of the robe, probably thinking it's going to be a bit of a trophy for what he's about to do. Right, this is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to kill Saul and, and take the kingship, finally. Right? And so we've got this whole scene setting up and really ramping up in terms of intensity. But, but let's, ju- let's just pause here now before we go into the next verse, because, because we can recognize that this is quite the opportunity. This is, this is quite the providence. Right? David's men recognize that this is a, a providential opportunity from God. The Lord's given Saul to you. Right? And David recognizes this as a providential opportunity as well, because down by verse 10 where he's interacting with Saul, he says, the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. So so it is God's design that Saul ended up in the cave in this particular way. David's men know it. David knows it. This is providence. This is exciting. What an extraordinary chance to be rid of David's most dangerous foe and and, and finally take the crown like has been promised to him. Like this is, is the time has finally come. What an opportunity. But is it really an opportunity to kill Saul? As the reader we can totally resonate with the excitement of David's men in terms of seeing this as an amazing chance. And even with the initial symbolic action that David takes, cutting off that corner of the robe, we can resonate with a sense of of righteous justification for taking Saul's life. Saul shouldn't be king anymore by our judgment, right? He's a terrible king in so many ways. He's even been rejected by God as king. He shouldn't be king. David should be king. Taking Saul out, It seems like a perfect plan for this perfect opportunity. This, as far as we can see, seems very justifiable. However, there is one small thing that bothers us, and that is there in verse 4 where David's men say to him, this is the day the Lord told you about, and then they quote the Lord to David, I will hand your enemy over to you so you can do with him whatever you desire. That sounds nice. Except, except there's no place in the storyline where it's recorded that God says that. Which seems like a big enough deal that if God had said that, the narrator of 1 Samuel you know, wouldn't have forgotten to include it. The men are excited, and, and it might seem like God is saying, kill Saul in this situation, but God, God hasn't said that. And, and does God even speak this way? So you can do whatever you desire. Does that sound like the voice of the Lord? Is God in the business of ordaining an indulgent revenge moment for David? So David's men say this, but something even in that, in that phraseology, it just, it just seems to touch off and it bothers us because, because even in the way all this plays out, uh, how, how clearly God's hand is in this situation, the thing is the men put words in God's mouth and, and providence is not self-interpreting. Just because we can, doesn't mean we should. I wonder if you've had one of those situations in your life. Maybe, maybe, there, maybe there are even situations where it seems like just exactly the kind of relief you need. And you have an awareness of God's providences. You know, things, things don't come to us by chance, but by His fatherly hand. The Lord's over falling sparrows in the decisions of kings, after all. And here I am in this situation where, where benefit can be had in this particular way. The door is open, so it must be God's will for me to do what I'd like to do. Maybe you've had those kinds of situations, that, that kind of in, internal uh, 
dialogue that can take place, thinking this must be the way to go. The opportunity's here. But, but then there's that pestering thought. Is, is the presence of an opportunity, is that the same as the approval of the Lord? Well, look, look at the next verses now, verses 5 to 7. And in those verses, we move from the opportunity to uh, properly interpreting the opportunity. Properly interpreting the opportunity. So verse 5 starts with a, with a turn that, that in one sense we really aren't expecting. The mood changes from this excitement uh, about, about the fact Saul's right there in front of them to conviction on the part of David. So keep that scene in your mind. There they are. They're all huddled at the back of the cave. Saul's near the, near the entrance. Um, and, and, and David all of a sudden is expressing this conviction. In the Hebrew text, it reads, it reads like this in verse 5. Afterward, David's heart was struck. Okay? It says something about his conscience being pricked or however it's translated here. But his heart was struck. So, so after David cuts off a corner of Saul's robe, his heart's struck. His conscience is pricked after he does that. And what's interesting about that particular phrase, that conscience, his heart being struck phrase, is it only shows up one other time in the Bible. And that's in 2 Samuel chapter 24, where David uh, sins by counting his men in a whole situation that's there. And again, we have that statement, his heart is struck uh, as he's convicted about what he's done. And again, here's this phrase showing up. David's experiencing conviction over the fact that he's cut part of Saul's robe off. He, he's struck in his heart. Because David's realizing that even in the cutting off of Saul's robe, even just in the symbolism that that, that represents, he, he's not acting rightly. And David doesn't just trust the sense of conviction to guide him, but in the midst of providences that aren't self-interpreting, David actually goes back to what the Lord has already done and said clearly. What does is, what is David start saying about Saul here? Well, he starts talking about how the Lord has anointed Saul as king. He's the Lord's anointed. Now, Saul's been disobedient as king. David knows the Lord's ultimately rejected Saul as king. But David also knows the law of Moses, for example, where Moses speaks in Exodus 22 about not cursing a leader of your people. To rebel against God's leaders among his people in Numbers 12 and 16 is to bring about judgment in that narrative, things like that. So, so David knows... Saul's been rejected by God ultimately, but he hasn't been displaced by God presently. He's still there. God hasn't moved Saul off the throne yet. So David's struck in his heart, and as he goes back to what God has made clear, David says to his men in verse 6, I would never do such a thing to the Lord's anointed. And then he basically repeats that again. I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. We see what's going through David's mind here. Saul's a mess. He's a disaster as a king. But there is a sacredness that David recognizes attached to Saul's life and position. And, and, and then we read in verse 7 how with these words David restrained his men. Now this is interesting and it actually demonstrates something of the intensity of the situation as this building there in the, in the recesses of the cave because apparently David's men were very much ready to go. They were ready to take Saul out. And part of the way we know that is not just their initial excitement, but the word that's used here where David persuaded his men. Again, it's, it's a unique word. Uh, only three times in the Bible does this word appear. The other two times it's used for tearing an animal apart. It's a very violent word. Okay. Here the term's used figuratively to describe David tearing into his men with words so they won't kill Saul. So, so David's acting very vigorously, almost violent with his speech to stop these men from taking Saul down. 
So, so David swings from starting the process of taking Saul out, first the corner of the robe, and then next it's going to be death for Saul. The men are ready. But, but David does a complete about face here, convicted in his heart, considering what God has already made plain, namely that, that Saul is anointed. He does this. He tears up his men with his words to prevent them from killing Saul. All the while, mind you, Saul just sits beyond them in the mouth of the cave, relieving himself. I mean, all this is happening in real time, you know. It'd be, it's, it's amazing just to picture what this must have looked like. David's, you know, menacing face when he wheels on these guys, but he's got to do like the yell whisper, you know. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Guys, so parents can do that. So we, we, we have skills with that, don't we, as parents? Hey! Right? Saul's got uh, to be spared, but he can't hear us talking. Here we are hiding in the back. And, and as intense as this scene is, again, there, there's really something very useful for us when it comes to interpreting providence. Um, and we can very much take note of David's process here. So, so just think this out with me for a moment. You have something present before you, a path to take, maybe even one that can bring big relief or even bring about what you, what you know or at least hope God will ultimately do, something that looks in the long run like it's according to the will of God, like Saul needs to be dead so I'm king. That sounds, that's according to the will of God ultimately, right? But how does David work through this? Because just because this opportunity presents itself, it doesn't mean God's providential purpose is for us to go through that door right now in that way. Right? So, so how does David work through this? How do we work through the process of interpreting providences? Well, the first part of David's experience here is that, is that of responding to the fact he's struck in his heart. He responds to that conviction in his conscience. So the same God of external providences is the God of internal heart strikes, if we can use the word that, that the passage uses here. And how much wisdom is represented in paying very, very close attention to those convictions when God brings them to our heart. They're not, they're not always big, but you, you know the sensation, you know things just aren't quite right. I'm pricked in my conscience regarding this. We know inside, even if we can't put it all into words, we know that something is off. We feel conviction about a certain thing. And, and, and David's example tells us to pay attention to that. In fact, even if we go to places like 1 Timothy 4 or Ephesians 4, Paul talks about the danger of a seared conscience. He talks about the danger of a calloused heart. It is possible for us, and we experience this in almost an undulating way at times in various areas of our life. At least I do. I hope you do. It would make me feel better if you did too. But, but, but where our conscience can, uh, can, can grow a little harder as we ignore things that are bothering us, and then, and then the Spirit of God draws us back and we turn away from those things that we maybe shouldn't have been engaging in to, to the degree that we were. But, but it's possible to wear our consciences down by ignoring the Spirit of God and the, and the ministry of that in our hearts, and, and the progress of that in our lives tends to be further and further and further and further and further away from life and obedience. It's possible to sear the conscience in that way, to do damage to it. But here, something that's just so notable is that David immediately pays attention to it. He's struck in his conscience and he responds. And so we can take, take a lesson there. Struck in my conscience. Should I go through this door? I've got this little twinge, uh, twinge. It might be by the Spirit of God that this probably isn't the righteous path to take. I'm not going to ignore that. I'm going to pay attention to it. But that's not the only factor. If we're led by our feelings... Things we can do but shouldn't do means it's pizza every night for me, right? So we can't be led by how we feel alone, right? What else, what else does it mean? Well, what David also does is he moves from what isn't clear 
about the way in which God is working to what is clear about God, uh, the way God works and what God has already said. What, what, what has God actually revealed plainly and clearly? What does God have to say on this matter? David doesn't go with an opportunity just because it's there providentially. He goes with what God has clearly said about Saul. He goes with God's clear word. Saul is anointed. It doesn't mean Saul's good. It doesn't even mean that Saul's going to remain. Saul's been rejected. But David goes with what has been made clear. Saul is the anointed king who still remains on the throne according to God's providential purposes. So, so, so this is extremely helpful for us. This helps us interpret providence in our lives. There's, there, there's, a, there's, an, there's an opportunity before us, and we have to start categorizing it. We start thinking through it. This, this has presented itself. And I can learn to pause and have an honest moment, a moment of prayer even maybe, but I do check my heart. Right? Does going forward give me pause? Does it give me that kind of internal concern that, that, that am I struck in my heart in a certain way if I think about proceeding forward with this? And then, and then along with that, and maybe most importantly, I check where God has spoken more plainly about a subject such as this. Is there a section of Scripture that can help inform my decision on this matter? Right? What, what is the will of God for me in general as I open my Bible? Right? So, so, so it may be, does this, does this decision I'm about to make, does this accord with what God generally reveals in His Word about money? Right? Or does this decision that I'm about to make accord with what God genuinely or generally reveals in His Word about, about marriage or sexuality? Or does this, this thing I'm about to do uh, correspond accurately with what God has, has said to me about the way I speak as a follower of Jesus, the tone and the, and the language I use, or about the way I spend my time, or about the way I, I cultivate relationships, or about the way I prioritize things in family life? Does this opportunity before me that's unique and particular, does this accord with what God has said more generally about what it means to be faithful to Him? And in moving through those things, the conviction of heart, and then checking that by the plain revealed truth of God, now I can begin to interpret my situation. Right? It's also helpful in those interpretation situations to have the help of wise, godly people around us. Right? Who does David have around him? Well, he's got some fighting men, and they're very excitable, but they're probably not the best advice givers. Yes, kill him, let's go. Well... Which, by the way, is another good way to indicate if somebody's uh, maybe somebody you'll indulge uh, your, your, your concerns with, too, because the quick responders, you know. We know the wise people in our lives. The wise people in our lives are always the ones who respond uh, in, in, a, in a kind of slow and careful way. David's men, they're ready to jump. The Lord said this, let's go. Well, he didn't, actually, and we shouldn't. So we just think about these things, the way David moves through this. Conviction of heart, plain revealed truth of God, Right? And then at that point, we can begin to interpret our situation. For David, the interpretation of the situation meant stop. Right? Don't, do, don't do this thing that's open to you. Right? And if we're honest, that oftentimes is what we need to hear, isn't it? It's just so easy to justify certain behaviors. I speak out of my own heart. But, but, but after all, God promised David the throne. Saul's wicked. It's so easy to justify all these things, all the reasons David could have had to kill Saul. But he didn't because he was, he was acting righteously in this way. So I just wonder right now if you're facing something where there are, there are all the reasons to go forward uh, that you could ever like, but there is that internal twinge of conscience. Just that little piece that's bothering you. And then maybe there's that one particular, I don't know, that, that proverb maybe that just causes you to slow down a little bit in the decision you're about to make. 
Take that to the council of, of, of good and godly friends and they speak to you about this and we recognize that, that God is gracious in the help that he gives us with our, prof, uh, with our processes because, because he sends providences. But for those providences, he equips us with conviction from the Holy Spirit. He equips us with his revealed truth in the scriptures and with those who are godly who can help us sort through these kinds of things. And so in this, in this particular situation, David stops. And what's amazing is that in David's restraint, we see something else play out in an extraordinary way. And there's, there's, there's so much we could really say about, about the last section here, verses 8 to 22. Uh, so we've had the opportunity, we've had interpreting the opportunity. In 8 to 22, we have the outcome of all of this. And, and I'm, I'm not going to go detail by detail because it would, just, it would just take too long. And you can read it through carefully on your own for homework. Verses 8 to 22. But, but in the end, what we see is David goes out of the cave after Saul has left, and he confronts Saul as he's, as he's walking away. I mean, Saul must have about jumped out of his skin when David came walking out after him. And, and David confronts Saul, and he does so very reverentially, doesn't he? Very respectfully. Falls down, pays homage. Right? And David also confronts Saul in a way that demonstrates he could but will not take Saul's life. So, so David confronts Saul, and here's something that, that's so unique about this. He confronts Saul confessing his own total reliance upon God to set things right that are so wrong between him and Saul. Right, verse 13, David says, May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord take vengeance on you for me, but my hand will never be against you. Or verse 15, he says it again, May the Lord judge and decide between me and you. May he take notice and plead my case and deliver me from you. David confronts Saul but he doesn't confront him full of violent vengeance. Instead, he confronts Saul confessing ultimately his total trust in the fact that the Lord is going to vindicate him. The opportunity is there, but the Lord is going to vindicate me. And, and in response, Saul basically falls apart. He's weeping in verse 16. Obviously, Saul would be, I mean, he, he must have been so extremely scared for his life at this point, right? And just overwhelmed by what's happening. But so Saul falls apart, he's weeping. And then, really, the most amazing thing happens here is that Saul confesses that David is the one who will be king in verse 20. Now, now I know for certain you're going to be king, he says, in all of this. And then Saul says a whole bunch of other nice stuff. He spews out sentimentalities. And ultimately, Saul leaves off chasing David, and he goes home in verse 22. But, of course, David knows Saul, because by the, by the end, in verse 22, we don't have David returning to his home. Right? He's Saul's son-in-law, remember. He doesn't return home to, uh, to his wife. But instead, David goes back to the stronghold in verse 22. David knows what Saul's heart is really like. Saul's responding with a, certainly a high level of sentimentality. There's a tone of affection in what Saul says. But ultimately, we know what Saul's heart is like. And we miss, skip one chapter over. And guess what Saul's doing again? Right back out to kill David. Right back out to kill David. And David knows this. I mean, you only go through so many spear-throwing competitions in Saul's living room before you figure out, I need to not be around this guy anymore. Right? And, that, and that's, and that's what's, what's happening with Saul. But, but we get here, and, and, and what are we putting together? Well, the outcome of David's careful interpretation of God's providence brings us to, to realize a couple of things. In God's providential purposes, as the storyline goes on, we can see how critical this particular episode is for David's own um, apologetic as a king. Because all through David's reign, there's going to be these instances of Saul's supporters causing him trouble. Little bits here and there. But of course, David is not going to come to the throne because he's usurped Saul. 
God will take care of that. David says as much later on too. God will take care of disposing of Saul. David comes to the throne by God's design, not through a murderous usurping plot. And, and that's going to become very critical because there's going to be accusations like that later on in David's reign. So providentially, this has been God's good purposes, a good purpose in that it set David up to take over reigning as king without having the, the, the mystique, the burden of having been the previous king's murderer on his back. If anything, David has only underpinned the sacredness of the anointed role as king in Israel. And so, and so providentially, this is very functional just from a political perspective as David is going to go forward. But then personally in David's life too, there's something very significant that happens here because while David was, was, was very intent and ready to take Saul out in the beginning, we come back to something very central in that, in that Saul is ulti- or David is ultimately learning once again to place his faith in the God who's going to work victory for him. Which is, which is what we read about when David pens his poem in this situation in Psalm 57. Do you remember how he speaks about the fact that, that, that God, he's the one who's exalted above the heavens and all of these things. But it is ultimately the Lord, God Most High, who fulfills his purposes for me. He reaches down from heaven and saves me. So these circumstances have brought David to this renewed place of trust in the fact that God is the one who's ultimately going to take care of him. David won't even be able to see through all these providences to the, to the, to the bigness of the effect these will have in his later reign. But he's trusting in the Lord to bring him to the place that God has promised to be. He's not going to take this shortcut of killing Saul. He's going to trust in the Lord. He's going to do it. Which, of course, is always a lesson for us. And actually, this is what directs us forward to anticipate properly the ministry of the Lord Jesus Himself. Because if you remember, as as we're introduced to the Lord Jesus' public ministry in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each of the three synoptic Gospels, we're told that Jesus was out in the wilderness and He was tempted by the devil. Do you remember that? But do you remember in each of those Gospels, how that whole situation is introduced to us, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. How does that all begin? After Jesus' baptism, what happens? The Spirit of God led Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Providence, the purposes of God in directing Christ out into the wilderness. To have this experience, it's going to be very difficult to navigate. And what was the temptation in the wilderness for Jesus? The temptation in the wilderness, the demonic temptation of Satan, was to come to Jesus and say, you can have all the kingdoms of the world if you just bow down to me. The evil one is offering Christ a shortcut, bypass the cross and come through this demonic channel to have the power that has been promised to you in that sense. Of course, it's all a deception and a lie, but this is what's promised to Jesus. He's, the temptation for, for, to Christ is a shortcut to the throne, right? much like is going on here with David in the cave to a, to a lesser degree. And we can identify with the fact that in the providences of God, these things can come to us and they can present a very real temptation. There will be plenty of times where David does not do well in these situations as the storyline goes on. And as we reflect on this, there are plenty of times where we do not do well as we reflect on our own lives. Those providences are there. Uh, There can be sweetness on the other side, but what do we do? We choose to walk through the door in a way that doesn't reflect a dependence upon God to bring about what's good for me, but reflects my own desire and my own devices to engage in what I think will be best for my relief or whatever it is right now. I'm going to go do it this way. And where do we find ourselves? We find ourselves so often ignoring the truth of Scripture and going in ways that are ultimately destructive and contrary to God and find a, which, which leave us in destructive and debilitating positions. We all know what that's like. Right? We see these open doors and we think, well, I might as well go because it's open. Right? 
Instead of pausing and reflecting and, and considering our own conscience, considering the Word of God, what does this really mean? What might His purposes be in this providence that are bigger than I initially see as I'm, as I'm looking at these things? So we can find ourselves faltering and faltering. David's going to find himself faltering and faltering, but here's the gospel in all this. The ultimate king of God's people is the one who engages through that providential door in a way that remains entirely faithful, totally, every time those opportunities are presented to himself. That's what Jesus proves in the wilderness, is that he is not the one who is out in the wilderness and ultimately falls. He's the one who's out in the wilderness, unlike all of us. He's the one who's out in the wilderness and never succumbs to temptation in any way that is contrary to the perfect will of the living God. And in coming to Christ, what we discover is not only uh, strength and not only wisdom and not only truth for walking through this life in a way that acknowledges God's providences before us. But as we come to Christ, we also come to the one who promises and offers and continually provides forgiveness for us every time we walk through those providential opportunities in ways that are contrary to God's ultimate good purposes. We come to Christ and we find the one who gives us forgiveness because he can, because he's the one who's walked through it perfectly and offered that perfect life up for us on the cross. And so, and so as we think about what David is picturing here, we're, we're, we're actually very amazed at David's righteousness. But at the end of the day, we find ourselves in this passage going, man, yeah, I'd say I'm one for 10, maybe one for 11. Right? And actually, David's probably one for 30 by the end of it. We find ourselves in our weakness, but ultimately we're pointed forward to the better king who does this perfectly and offers us forgiveness for all those times we've failed. And so, and so we, we start to think about providences in these terms, not only uh, realizing that there is forgiveness for us as we engage in them improperly, but also realizing that there's wisdom for us as we engage in them according to the word of God and with the grace that he promises to give. So we listen to our hearts. We get to know our Bibles. Uh, we surround ourselves with those who give better advice than this is the day the Lord has made, go kill him. Right? And as we do these things, we end up finding life on the other side of God's purposes that is, that, that, that is abounding and glorious and flourishing and exactly what he calls us to uh, through, through the, uh, the grace that's found in the Lord Jesus. And so we're mindful of these things and, and we're helped in our own decision-making processes. We know even this morning, uh, we can probably all uh, pinpoint experiences in our life, maybe even right now, where decisions need to be made and those decisions are hard. Opportunities are there, but the Lord is gracious in those opportunities uh, to help us walk forward in a way that's faithful. Let's pray. So, Father, we do pray that you would give us the grace to walk faithfully. We trust in you and love you. And as we do that, Lord, we pray that we would glorify the Lord Jesus resting in uh, his eternal care. Uh, we pray that we would have the wisdom we need uh, prick our consciences as they need to be pricked, and may we respond uh, by searching your word and walking in ways that correspond with the life uh, your son has purchased for us. We ask this in his name. Amen.